This week on Life and Faith. I think Christians have a lot to bring to the political sphere where there is constantly disappointment, but also constantly the prospect of making life better for people, especially those who have less power than we do. And Christians are called especially to care for those neighbors. So there's a lot Christians could do besides making a lot of noise and waving a lot of flags. An opinion you can change, like you change a shirt, but a worldview is something like your skin color. It's part of who you are. I want to be able to read for two hours with no one interrupting me. I said, I know what I'll do will be heretical, but I don't want it to be blasphemous. This is Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Last year we did an episode on the US election and the role of white evangelicals in that. And since then we've had the controversy of the election itself, the refusal of Donald Trump and his supporters to accept the result, and then the terrible storming of the Capitol building. And we'll get to that in a moment. But there was a story that emerged among so many others in all that drama that I found particularly striking. And it seemed to represent a whole lot of what has taken place over the last 30 years. It was a letter that a Republican member of Congress, Adam Kinzinger, received from members of his extended family after he voted in favour of impeaching the president. Here's how that went. Oh my, what a disappointment you are to us and to God. Eleven members of his extended family signed this letter. And it's all incredibly damning. We were once so proud of your accomplishments. Instead, you go against Christian principles and join the devil's army, Democrats and fake news media. How do you call yourself a Christian when you join the devil's army? It is now most embarrassing that we are related to you. You've embarrassed the Kinzinger family name. We are not judging you. This letter is our opinion of you. So we're not judging you. I'm not sure how that works. It sounded like they were judging him to me. But the letter finishes with a flourish. We are thoroughly disgusted with you. So what does that all sound like to you? The things that stand out in all of this is the utter rejection of someone for their political opinion and action. And let's not forget, he's a Republican, not a Democrat. And the linking to faith. You've sided with the devil. How can you call yourself a Christian? There's no place in their lives for him in this situation. The division and the way faith is connected to that is the thing that's so alarming to me about this. The politicization of faith in the US has a long backstory, but the social revolution of the 60s and the 70s is key to understanding this, where conservative Christians respond to the way family and sexuality and authority was challenged so much in the upheaval of those decades. Responding to this and opting for a pragmatic engagement in politics, whereby apparently Christian values would be protected, conservative Christians join with secular conservatives to form the religious right. So from the Reagan presidency of 1980 onwards, the term evangelical Christian became synonymous with Republican voter. Faith, flag and country and GOP politics became intertwined. What do we make of all of that? What lessons can be learned from this history and its most recent manifestations? To help us out today, we're joined by Canadian author, theologian and CPX fellow, John G. Stackhouse Jr., I spoke with him from his home in New Brunswick. John, great to see you there. Thanks for joining us. 
Good to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you back on the program. Now, as you have observed the politics in the US in the last few years, and especially the last few months, I want to ask, what are the things that have most alarmed you? And I'm particularly thinking of the place of faith in that kind of mess that we've seen. Christianity is irreducibly political. So I'm not alarmed by Christians being involved as citizens in the life of their country. Christianity is not a religion that encourages quietism, retreat. It doesn't encourage people to abandon the public sphere and just huddle up in churches waiting for Jesus to come back and save us all. Christianity is a public faith. But I think I want to make three points about this, if I may. I think the first thing that, that comes to mind is that the early church's first confession was that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, because Caesar is Lord was what you'd say well, at least once a year by Roman law. And Christians say, no, Jesus is Lord. Secondly, Christians say, the church is my family. The church has my prior commitment over every other social organization and the state. And the third thing Christians want to say is that our primary mission, our God-given mission, is to make shalom, is to make the world flourish. Now, those sound like fairly vague ideas, but I think they have real political edge. If you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying, I don't mindlessly support any politician or any party. If you say the church is my fundamental social organization, then you don't sell out to a party or to a, a philosophy or to any kind of particular political program. And if you say that my primary concern is to make the world a better place, then I will support whoever makes the world a better place. So you see, there's no room in Christianity for tribalism. There's no room for a kind of narrow nationalism. There's no room for making America great at the expense of other nations or of the white race against other races. Christianity truly transcends any particular land or race or ethnic group or class, at least it should. So whenever Christians are not looking like that, they're not looking like Christians. You've mentioned this um, movement towards the capturing by one political party of a whole swathe of Christian believers. That wasn't always the case, was it? Can you give us a very quick sketch of how that happened, how that's unfolded in the last sort of 20 or 30 years? Well, one of the enduring, interesting questions about the American situation is why white Christians have supported Donald Trump and the Republican Party so strongly. It's not just white evangelicals, by the way. White Catholics also supported him more than others did. So people, including guests on your show, have looked at white Christian nationalism as the key that explains that, because black Christians didn't support Donald Trump and the GOP, and Latino uh, Christians were split between the Republican and Democratic parties, um, often along other kinds of lines, like whether you know, Cuban immigrants, for instance, voted very differently than people from Central America. Mm -hmm. So I think this is an example, a really good example of what I'm talking about of, as Christians not acting like Christians, but acting like 
uh, the prince's middle class or working class or rich people that they might be uh, with white pride, uh, with fear of their positions in American culture under threat. But they're not acting like, like Christians. They happen to be Christians. And if Donald Trump throws them a few Christian bones, they'll gobble them up. But clearly, they're not acting, I would say, under the priorities that are basic to Christian faith. A much-commented-on incident in the storming of the Capitol building was when a group of protesters managed to fight their way to the floor of the House. They were ransacking the place, and then, in the midst of all of this threat and violence, they paused and took a moment to pray. Let's all say a prayer in this sacred space. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for gracing us with this opportunity to allow us to send a message to all the tyrants, the communists, and the globalists that this is our nation, not theirs. That we will not allow the America, the American way of the United States of America to go down. Thank you, divine, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent creator God for filling this chamber with your white light of love, with your white light of harmony. Thank you for filling this chamber with patriots that yes, love you Lord. and that love Christ. Yes. Thank you, divine, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent creator God for blessing each and every one of us here and now. Amen. Thank you, divine creator God, for surrounding and filling us with the divine, omnipresent white light of love and protection, peace and harmony. Thank you for allowing the United States of America to be reborn. Thank you for allowing us to get rid of the communists, the globalists, and the traitors within our government. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's holy name we pray. When you see scenes like the people who stormed the Capitol building get inside the house and then pause to pray in the way that they did, and I'm sure you've seen that, what's your kind of visceral response to that? My visceral response is revulsion because I tend to have nausea whenever I see idolatry of any sort. Uh, as somebody who believes there is a true God and a living God to whom we owe our allegiance and our worship, if you worship anything else, there's something grotesque about that. Uh, And when it's so blatant that these people are in fact trying to co-opt the Christian God for some other cause, then as a Christian, I'm particularly offended. I'm not just uh, surprised or revolted. I'm, I'm, I'm offended because they're taking my God and sticking them on top of their standard and on their flag. And I'd say, that's not where my God belongs. Jesus is Lord, not the United States, not its cause. Now, you mentioned Christian nationalism, which has been identified as, as a big part of sort of evangelical thinking in the last few decades. What is it, what is it and is it problematic? Or why is it problematic? Well, I think we have to put Christian in scare quotes when we stick it on to something like nationalism. <laughs> I mean, it's not supposed to be Christian something else. It's, a Christian's not supposed to be a flavor of something else. Christian is supposed to be your fundamental allegiance to the Lord Jesus. And so it's fine to be, in fact, it's healthy to be a devoted member of your community. Uh, I'm a Canadian. And I, uh, as a historian, am well aware of many of the faults of uh, Canadians and of my country over our hundreds of years of history. But I still support Canada, and I do what I can to uh, make Canada a better place. This is my people. And when I'm down under, I love talking with Aussies and Kiwis, but it's just not the same, just not not my people in the same way. But Christianity also says that I am a member of the human race more than I am a Canadian, and even more fundamentally, I'm a member of the Christian church. 
And so when I get the chance to visit Australia or New Zealand, my connection with people like you as my fellow Christians is stronger than my connection with my fellow Canadians. And I think it's supposed to be uh, because we serve the same Jesus and we are about the same business. And that's just not true of my fellow Canadians. Um, we only are sort of accidentally, temporarily about the same sort of thing as we live together. But that's not the same as the ultimate cause of trying to make shalom. And, and that is the kind of, I think, generally happy tension we live in. And when that Christian commitment gives way to something secondary, like Canadian patriotism or American nationalism, something's gone badly wrong. And it goes badly wrong, doesn't it, when you put too closely attached the flag to any particular church, right? Well, it's just a mistake to bring national flags into churches. I respect those churches that don't do that. I think that there can be helpful cooperation between the state and the church. I think that any kind of rigorous church-state separation is a kind of overreaction. But I think that the clarification of those two domains and those two spheres is really important. And particularly within the part of the church where you're worshiping God, you've got to be really clear that the symbols are consistent. And, and, and we don't worship God and then secondarily our country. It's not about our country in that sense at all. And so those flags should simply be gone, I think. For people outside the church who look on and see all this sort of activity and posture towards the world with a probably a very different picture to the one you gave us at the beginning, right, where you were saying this is what it should look like. What's your sense of people's perception of Christianity and Christians and how that's been impacted by recent political events? Well, there aren't many groups in general, religious or otherwise, that look their best when they're most furious on public display, mm. right? I mean, football fans don't look their best when you train their cameras at the loudest mouths and the most violent of the fans. Like most people aren't that way when they go to a footy game. But, you know, if you put your camera and the microphone in the right direction, they can all look like maniacs and, and, and criminals because a few of them are maniacs and criminals. <laughs> and so I think partly the media simply is always going to be attracted to the most flagrant and ridiculous examples of whatever uh, they're looking at, especially if they're hostile. But I think at the same time, Christians need to speak up a bit. And it's a little bit like not all Christians, you know, not all evangelicals, not all Catholics are this way. And to speak up on social media, on Twitter and Facebook and so on, and say, you know, I politely demur it. Like, this is not me. This is not my family. This is not our church. This is not our cause. Uh, I think can do actually more good than people think. Earlier on, you talked about faith always having political implications. So you said it has a place in public life. What, what is that place then? The place I think each of us should take is according to whether we feel that we have been gifted and called by God to enter this particular sphere of human life and make a positive difference. Most spheres of human life, God hasn't called me to, so I should actually shut up about them. Let other people do that. And in particular, not waste my energy trying to do a little bit across the waterfront of human need, because that's not going to help anybody. The way the needle gets moved is by concentrated effort and force. And so I, I would suggest we 
consider where can I make a difference? Where am I located in the economy? Where am I located in social life? Where am I located in the polity of my country? What's the cause I can push for? And I'll bless other people to push for other things, but I really care about child poverty, or I really care about clean water to Aboriginal reservations, or I really care uh, about making sure that the food security is there for everybody. And so there's got to be a sense in which we try to move the needle and make a significant difference. And that can't come if I spend all my time opining about everything on Facebook or simply going in public and yelling a lot. That definitely doesn't help very much. It's an awful lot of that happening at the moment. Um, it's probably too big a question to raise in the time we have, but there's a sense, and you've mentioned this a few times, of the place of race in this divided, refracted environment that we have. What have we learned most about race in the last few years in this divided political environment? Well, I think, to me, as a Canadian trained in the U.S. and who has had the privilege of visiting some other countries, such as yours, I think, to me, the most interesting thing that I've learned, and perhaps other people have learned, has been this term intersectionality. It's not a new idea for those of us who've been trained in history and the social sciences, but it's a really helpful term to remind us that there's more than one thing going on in lots of situations. Now, sometimes it's just about race, but sometimes it's race and sex or gender. Sometimes, in fact, often it's class, uh, who's got the money and who doesn't, who's got the power and who doesn't. Sometimes it's about status. Sometimes it's about inherited uh, wealth and, uh, as I say, a power, uh, as opposed to those who don't. Sometimes it's about who gets to tell the stories and who's got the microphones. So... Part of my exasperation occasionally as a Canadian uh, dealing with my uh, American cousins is that sometimes they get into these, these, about every 20 or 30 years, it's race, race, race all the time, it seems to me. Now, to be sure, if you're a person of color in the United States, it is race all the time. You know, your everyday experience is that way. I, uh, one of my daughters-in-law is a brown Canadian. I mean, every day that's an issue for her. But she'll also quickly say, it's not just about being brown, it's about being a woman. That's an issue every day. And so... Uh, I think, to me, uh, I don't get bothered by people who say, oh, critical race theory is this. To me, it's just obvious. Of course, we should expect racism. We should expect sexism. We should expect classism. People with power generally try to keep it and, in fact, increase it at the expense of other people. So all of that, to me, is simply being realistic. And the world's a complex place. So to avoid simplistic ideas about what's wrong with the world... But at the same time, then say, okay, it's a complex world, but I can maybe help here. And see, that's the kind of paradox I'm suggesting, Simon, is that we can't solve everything, each of us, but each of us can solve something. And let's see what that is that we can do to make things better. This is Life and Faith from CPX, and we're talking today about politicization of faith. We've been speaking about the situation in the US where that is an especially pronounced phenomenon. What do Australians think about this? And what, if anything, does the US situation have to say to those of us who live in Australia? Nathan Campbell is an associate of CPX. He's a pastor and blogger and thinks a lot about these kinds of issues. I spoke with him from his home in Brisbane. Now, in the last 30 years or so, we've seen a huge shift in US politics where 
one side of politics has captured an enormous kind of swathe of the Christian community. Now, there's complex reasons for this, but do you see that situation as problematic, and, and if so, why? Oh, I see it particularly as problematic in the United States, uh, particularly as a Christian who uh, thinks the good news of Jesus is political because it's an announcement of a, a king who's going to rule differently, uh, a king who comes and lays down his life. Uh, and so I think there is a politics that comes with faith, but I don't think that can be aligned with particular forms of human empires and particularly with power and a kind of corrupting nature of power without that starting to corrupt people's perception of the good news. Right. And uh, across history, you see this corruption, isn't it? When you when Christians have held power, they haven't always held it very well. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's been really good uses of power by Christians. The, the pattern of the cross is to lay down your power, your life for others as an act of love. And where that's happened through history, I think we've seen it produce amazing fruit in the West. Uh, but when it's been wedded to power and people have clung to power and held it, grasped it for themselves. Uh, there's a pattern in the Bible in, in Philippians 2 where Jesus doesn't grasp hold of the nature of God but, but lays down his life. When we don't do that, it can be diabolical. I think it can have really disastrous results. And we've seen that in history as well. And I think we see that uh, in the US around the linking of Trump's vision of politics with uh, the evangelical vision of politics there. It's very tempting, isn't it, for people of faith to go for political power and influence. And as you say, that can start out with good motives, but very often, you know, it's the old thing of the corrupting nature of power. I'd say it's almost always well-motivated. I, I, yeah. I don't think many people who get into politics are not trying to make the world better according to their vision of, of what a good society looks like. Uh, that's been my experience of non-Christian politicians around Australia as well. But I do think that that saying power corrupts is, is true for a reason because once you get a taste of that and get a taste of influence, it's very easy for your vision to become the, the domineering one and for you to use that power at the expense of others and competing visions in society and that creates tension and friction and, and I think over time creates polarisation, the kind of tribalism we're seeing mm. um, at play in the US definitely and, and maybe hints of that here as well. Yeah, the, important to say, isn't it, that Often the way this plays out, you're talking about using power for the benefit of other people. A lot of people of faith who've managed to get power at least think they're doing that too. But it becomes, the question becomes in a very contested public space, whose benefit are you really seeking here? And it's not clear to people. That's right. And it can often be mixed. So the theological concept that kind of goes back to Augustine and probably more realistically back to the Bible, the idea of the human heart curved in on itself. So even as people are trying to love their neighbours, there's always going to be self-love in the mix and the corrupting nature of sin in the Bible's vision of what that is, that kind of putting yourself first. That's going to mean that as we use power, unless there's some really good checks and balances in place, uh, we are going to become self-seeking and that's always going to be at the expense of others. For a lot of people who aren't Christian today, it wouldn't be thought of as good news to have Christians involved in those spaces, though. They're kind of a bit sick of it, a bit over it, and feel like it might be a negative presence. How do you, you know, respond to that? Yeah, look, I think we've got to own that as Christians, that at times, as through the history of the West, we've had power. We haven't wielded it uh, in ways that have always been for the sake of our neighbours. Uh, I think there's that mixed bag of, you know, you've got 
hospitals and schools and other things that we take for granted that are products of Christian political action and Christian political views, but others are not part of that same political party, that same, that same political group. And so we need to navigate difference. Uh, and so that's going to play out differently for different Christians based on how they think that looks. But if our model of difference is to lay down our lives for those who mistreat us, to turn the other cheek, uh, then a Christian presence in the political space is going to be good, not just for those who are just like us, typically coming from positions of privilege, but for those who are at the margins of society who are particularly the people that Jesus came and expressed a concern for. And I think we've flipped our focus a little bit sometimes when we've pursued power. Uh, It's looked like we've wanted to be at the centre rather than we've wanted to represent the people who are left behind. I mean, that sounds good, but in a political world where you are, you know, working for certain particular outcomes, just sort of lying down and saying, no, no, you, you just do whatever you want. I'm going to kind of lay my life down here for you. What does it mean? I mean it sounds nice, but what does it mean practically? That's a really good question, I think, because I think it's not that power itself is negative in the kind of Christian view of, of politics or of life. Uh, Jesus has power and he gives it up for others. So it's about not acting in self-interest, but looking to the interests of others. And it's in humility, considering them better than yourselves. So a lot of what I'm saying here is just kind of lifting Philippians 2 and dropping it into the mix. That's that's probably a good place to go for people who are curious about what a, a Christian politic might look like. But yeah, I think it really does look like genuinely acting for the good of the other. Uh, it looks like prioritising the concerns of people whose voices might not otherwise be heard when it comes to your actions. And it looks like letting go of your own rights, uh, and taking responsibility for those around you. Does Christianity have to land on either left or right of the political spectrum? Because a lot of people would seem to think it does. Look, I think that's one of those challenges. I think the Bible presents wisdom as trying to navigate two poles that are both really apparently true. And so Christian political engagement, I think, is actually going, there are truths we're going to find on either side of that divide, Uh, What does wisdom look like? And for us, uh, God's wisdom is revealed in Jesus and particularly in the cross of Christ, which is wisdom for those who see it as wisdom and taste life and and foolishness for others. But when it comes to our politics, I want to look at the left and their care for the marginalised and their concern for uh, those being left behind, the refugees, uh, our Indigenous population, uh, the poor. And I want to say there's great things about that that are examples of the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to bring. And there's something about... Uh, what we might call the left's ability to see systemic issues and systemic sin and to be able to call that out. Uh, As a Christian, I think their solutions are sometimes deficient because they don't address the heart and they see if you change the environment and the system, you'll change the behaviour. And there's some truth to that, but that heart curved in on itself isn't necessarily going to be changed by a system. It's changed from above by God uh, through his spirit. And so you want to say yes to a lot of the things they see, but no to some of their solutions. And then on the right, I think uh, concern for life and the dignity of individuals and, and that we're made in the image of God and so life should be protected and even uh, that flows through to things like property and uh, opportunity. I want to say those things are, are great too and, and products of uh, a Christian conviction about the world. I think it's hard to find anything in the West that hasn't been deeply informed by a Christian moral compass when you dig down. So I think Christians can find themselves across the spectrum, finding particular issues that resonate with their hearts, and they can uh, be a faithful presence in those 
institutions or political parties that are seeking that change, knowing that the main table we sit at is the one we sit at together in the church. It's the, the communion table or the uh, where you go to have the Eucharist, if that's your tradition. It's the eating together, experiencing the hospitality of God and, and looking at one another as a body that then shapes us to go into these other places and not lose our, our story or our sense of self. So whether you're in Missouri or Mildura, it's evident that Christianity has sometimes been a part of the growing polarization of recent years. So what does Christianity have to offer by way of healing divisions and fractures in our society? Here's John Stackhouse again. Christianity and the Christian church as the community that advances the Christian outlook, I think really needs to recover the idea that among other things, it's not the only thing we are, but among the most important things that we are is a service organization. That we're put in the world by God to primarily bring people to acquaintance with Jesus Christ. Yes, that's the distinctive Christian work. But we bring people to meet Jesus Christ because he's the one who shows us and tells us how to live a proper human life. And then we're supposed to get about living proper human lives, which means trying to make anything better, any situation we're in, at work or at play, when we're making art, when we're, when we're uh, pursuing sport, to make the situation better. We, we don't become Christians because it's a cool religion to belong to. It's not a particularly cool religion to belong to. Or because it's a cool club. I've been to lots of churches. Not one of them was a cool place to be. It's about learning how to live life to the full and enjoying life lived according to the precepts of Jesus, which are the way, the truth, and the life, as he is. So what Christians can bring is, a, is literally a positive attitude, an attitude of hope that God is busy in the world and he does love us and he is trying to make things better. And a kind of realism at the same time that expects there to be sin and stupidity and waste. We're not shocked by that. We're disappointed by it, but we're not surprised. And so we just roll up our sleeves and keep trying to make things better. I think Christians have a lot to bring to the political sphere where there is constantly disappointment, but also constantly the prospect of making life better for people, especially those who have less power than we do. And Christians are called especially to care for those neighbors. So there's a lot Christians could do besides making a lot of noise and waving a lot of flags. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. It's been great to have your company. If you enjoyed this episode, why not let someone else know about it? Send them the link, get them into the conversation. Help spread the word about life and faith. Next week. If we put our minds to the society, we could be on Mars in 10 years. The technology we either have or we have prototypes for, uh, it's just a matter of developing it. Uh, we know the people are tough enough and clever enough to be able to do it. We know the sort of people who will do it. It's just a matter of the political will of committing the resources to it. And resources aren't that much. I mean, they're a lot for you and me, but compared to the amount of money that we spend on fighting wars of dubious value in various parts of the world, it's actually quite trivial.